0: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew.
1: It can get a little difficult to digest. In general, In general, here's what I think that that he's saying. First of all, in relation to salvation, it's a free gift. Notice that the servants didn't do anything to deserve what they received. Uh, The master just gave them freely. To one he gave five, to another he gave two, to another he gave one. But they each got something of tremendous value, but it was a free gift. That's important to understand about salvation.
0: There are many people who believe that they need to earn their salvation. Unfortunately, a common practice among religions today is to put a great deal of emphasis on a works-oriented approach to salvation. In today's message, Pastor Gary will encourage you to look past the false teaching of getting to heaven based on your works and accept the free gift of salvation that God has offered to you. It's not by your good works that God chooses to accept you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: Here's how we also know it has to be more than just natural talent and natural ability. Because how did the story end? How did the parable end? The guy who misused the one talent that, that the servant, that the master had given him, was punished severely. In fact, he was judged. And Jesus says, look at again, verse 30, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where, the, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is that an idiom for? Hell. That's an idiom for hell. A place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth is an expression that you often find through the Gospels that is indicative of the torment and the suffering, the judgment of hell. I guarantee you, if you have a good singing voice and you don't happen to sing out loud enough and worship the Lord to your fullest, well, maybe God is feeling like, wow, you could do better. But you're not going to be thrown into hell for that, okay? That's not the Father that we have. That's not God. He doesn't throw us into hell because we don't use our talent. So it doesn't mean natural giftings and natural abilities. And frankly, neither does it mean money by itself. This is a parable. This is a parable. This is a picture of something that has incredible worth and value, and the misuse of it results in hell. Then what does that sound like? The master is giving something. And the one who misuses it, the one who does not appropriate it in any way, ends up being judged and sentenced to hell. I think the safest interpretation of talent literally is a reference to salvation. It's the idea here that the master's going to go away. Jesus is going away. And he's leaving. He's entrusting to people the good news of the most valuable, incredible thing that's ever been offered as a gift. And that's the free gift of salvation. Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world. As many as believed and received him, to them but he gave the right to become children of God. What God has done for you and me is to bankrupt heaven so that we might have the opportunity to receive a free gift that is of eternal, incredible value that is of inestimable worth. And that is the free gift of salvation. So if you really look at this parable and you think in terms of, well, what does the talent represent in its in its purest form, that if you misuse it can result in hell, I think it's clear that the, really the only thing you could ultimately say is salvation. And the misuse of it will result in eternal consequence. If you don't receive and appropriate it properly and accept it as a free gift, there, there is no hope. There is, there is no eternal life. There's only the result of the consequence of judgment. Now, here's what he's saying here in in regards to the talent. So don't Don't get too, um, you know, the difficulty in parables is that every little nuance does not necessarily mean a spiritual deep meaning, okay? Even in the story of the ten virgins or the bridesmaids. The picture of the bridesmaids was a picture of people who would ultimately believe. But some of you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought in the Bible the real picture of the church is the bride of Christ. And in the parable, there were the bridesmaids. And, you know, always a bridesmaid but never a bride. And I, I thought we were the bride. And said, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is not teaching doctrine here. He's teaching a parable. Okay? He's teaching a, a truth to illustrate a deeper spiritual meaning. The same thing here in the, in the parable of the talents. When you look at this and, and, and you try to break every nuance down, it can get a little difficult um, to, to digest. In general, in general, here's what I think that, that he's saying. First of all, in relation to salvation, it's a free gift. Notice that the servants didn't do anything to deserve what they received. Uh, the master just gave them freely. To one he gave five, to another he gave two, to another he gave one. But they each got something of tremendous value, but it was a free gift. That's important to understand about salvation. Uh, some of you with certain backgrounds, particularly uh, I talk often with, with those of you who might be here with Catholic backgrounds, and our church is made up of as much as maybe a third of folks with Catholic backgrounds. This is one issue where people who are raised in the Catholic church have a difficult time sometimes embracing because there's a great deal of emphasis in Catholicism on a works-oriented approach to God. If I do enough things and if I and if I live right and if I keep my plate clean and I just, you know, and I and I do enough good things, then that's how I will make it. And, and then when you end up realizing, wait a minute, this is a gift and it is it is a gift that is free and it is not on the basis of my goodness or my good works. This is entirely a free gift that Jesus has offered us to, freely to receive. Man, that is so liberating. That is so liberating. Now, do I want to do good works in response to this free gift? Sure. It's not good works that then make God more favorably disposed to me so that He likes me enough to save me. It is that I was dead in my trespasses and sins and that in my sin, He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for me so that in Him I might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus pays the price fully for us. He dies on a cross and then He offers salvation as a free gift to all who would believe and receive. It's a free gift. You don't earn it. You can't, you, none of us deserve it. You can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Jesus provided it for us. It's a free gift. But the other aspect here of this story is that it requires a response. Each one was given a certain measure, five, two, and one, and it required a response. They were supposed to do something here. The guy who had five invested it, five more. The guy with two invested it, two more. The guy with one buried it, did nothing with it. That's why that one is going to suffer judgment, because he didn't respond to it at all. It was given to him, it was offered to him, and he did nothing with it. The third thing to recognize is that there will be a day of accounting. Because in the parable, Jesus says the master is going to come again, and he's going to ask for an accounting. And so the guy with five, what did you do? I got five more. Guy with a two, what'd you do? Two more. Guy with a one, what'd you do? Well, now this is interesting because it shows that the guy with one didn't even really know the master. And this is really. the, the end result of somebody who's not saved when they don't really know God and understand God and therefore they don't want to receive from God. And, and there, are, unfortunately, are too many people in our world who have a misunderstanding, a misconception of who God is. And you know whose responsibility it is to help them understand who the Lord really is? It's our responsibility. Because a lot of people have these misguided notions about who God is, and, and they are pictured in this story by this guy, because notice here, in verse 24, then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See here, here's what I give it back to you. I just give it back to you. I don't want it. Now notice this guy's perception. His perception of the master was he's a hard man, he's unreasonable, he's unfair. Because he harvests in fields he didn't even plant. And, and he says, I was afraid of you. Now, How many people do we know like this in the world? Their perception of God is he's a hard God. He's a terrible judge. He's, he's just out to injure us. And, and he's, ang- he's an angry God. And I'm afraid of God. And a lot of people don't want to have relationship with God because they perceive him in a wrong way that that's the kind of God that he is. That's who this guy thought the master was. Now the master comes back and he says, well, wait a minute. He says in verse 26, You wicked, lazy servant. Now, this is a little tricky, but notice the next phrase. He says, So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Now, literally, how that translates is, So this is what you think of me? He's he's not conceding that that's who he is. How it literally translates is, That's what you thought of me? That's your perception of me? You thought that about me? No, no, no. See, you had the wrong perception of who I am. And because you had the wrong perception of who I am, you didn't do anything with the free gift I gave you. This is a free gift for you. And as a result, he is judged. Take the talent, verse 28, from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, you don't want the free gift? I'll give it to somebody else. You don't want to be saved? There's many more people who want to be saved, and many more people who will accept this free gift. It's a tragic story. But in the end, what he's saying is be responsible. Be responsible. God is giving us the opportunity to receive the free gift of salvation. We need to be responsible with the gift that he's given us. Again, if you want to translate this on other levels, I think that's okay as far as if God's given you talent, use it for his glory. God's given you special abilities, certainly use it for his glory. Everything he's given us, use for his glory. But at the end of the day, this parable is much more than just natural abilities. This is a deeper issue of life for which if we do not accept it, misuse it, give it back to God, there's only judgment. Now, you might ask, why is it though That in the parable, one guy was given five, and one two, and one one. It was distributed differently. Jesus in the parable says, according to their ability. Now think of it this way. The better way to illustrate this is by sharing a little story out of Luke chapter 7. You can turn there or you can just listen. But in Luke's gospel chapter 7, there's a very tender story where Jesus is at a dinner party at the home of a guy by the name of Simon. He's a Pharisee. He's not a believer, at least not at the time of the story here. And Jesus goes to his house for dinner. And in walks this, she's referred to in the Bible as a woman who lived a sinful life. She's a prostitute. And she comes in to the dinner party. Here's the story in Luke 7, verse 36. It says, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he's just talking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. Isn't that great? The guy was thinking in his mind, and Jesus knew his thoughts and answered him. And he said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, this is key. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much that he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Your attention again. Here's how I think it relates to the parable of the talents. Because God distributes His grace in greater measure according to the greater need. One guy got five, one guy got two, one guy got one. I know that it's not good for us to ever rank sin and certainly never to measure ourselves with each other and to talk about, oh, I've sinned more than this person or I've sinned less than this person. That's never a good and a right thing to do. But when you look at the story in Luke chapter 7, how Jesus talks about to him who much is given, much is required, he who loves little has been forgiven little. He who loves much has been forgiven much. I think it's a reminder to me. Here's this prostitute who comes into this dinner party and she's done a lot of things that are sinful. The Pharisee, here stands Simon, and he's proud and arrogant and haughty in his self righteousness. And Jesus points out the fact that this woman needs more grace, and Jesus pours out more grace, and thus she is more thankful and more loving and more appreciative because he's poured out a greater measure according to her need. Maybe Simon had never been as sexually promiscuous as this woman. But the grace that Jesus pours out is proportional to the need. In the parable back here, the the parable of the talents, in some sense there are those of you who just need to know when you think about your life and you look at all the things you've done and you think, man, I've done a lot of stuff and how can the Lord forgive me? His grace is sufficient and proportional to the need. And he will pour out all that you need. All that he wants is an equal return. The guy that needed five returned five. The guy that needed two returned two. The guy that had one, he just buried it because he didn't want to have anything to do with this. The guy who had five received, in essence, the free gift of salvation. Jesus died, he gave his life. You know what he wants back? I want your life in return. I want equal proportion to the gift. I just want full surrender. I just want your life for my life that was given in exchange for you on the cross. I just want you to give equally to that which you have received. And so as he teaches this parable, may it be a reminder to us, we have to be not only ready, but we have to be responsible with the free gift that the Lord has given us. So let's close out chapter 25 because same theme here, but this is what he says now. He moves into some allegorical terms, but it says in verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory, he's speaking very plainly here, he's talking about a second coming. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, He's talking very literally, but then he moves into some allegorical terms. He says, when the Son of Man comes, and when you look at the timeline of events, what Jesus is saying here is, after the period of tribulation, seven years of tribulation that will come upon the earth, spelled out between Revelation 6 and 18, then Jesus returns to the earth. And one of the first things he's going to do is he's going to judge the nations, those who have survived the tribulation period. During the tribulation period, you will be able... People still will be able to get saved. So here comes Jesus now, end of the tribulation period. Jesus returns, Battle of Armageddon, defeats these nations that are opposed to him, opposed to Israel. He sets up his throne and he's going to judge. He's going to judge the people that have survived. And now he talks in terms of goats and sheep, and he's going to talk a little further down about my brothers, my brothers. The sheep represent the righteous. They represent the believers. Jesus says, I'm going to put the sheep on my right. Then I'm going to put the goats on my left. The goats represent non-believers. And he's going to judge them. And this is very interesting and it's somewhat difficult, but here's what he says here. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, before we go on to read what he says to the goats, he's just going to basically say the opposite thing to the goats. He says to the righteous ones, to the sheep, he's calling them the sheep, they're the righteous ones on his right side. He says, look, you, you guys are ready for your inheritance. You've done well. Go and receive. And Jesus talks In personal terms, he says, I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I needed a drink and you gave me something to drink. And the righteous are going to, in that day, they're going to say, when did we see you specifically hungry and thirsty and naked? We we didn't really see you per se. And Jesus is going to say, yeah, but when you did those things unto the least of my brothers, you were in as much doing it to me. Now, who were the brothers? Well again, there's many different interpretations of this parable, and it usually comes down to two things: the brothers can represent people in general, and when, when you 're good to people uh, you 're being good to Jesus. When, when you see those who are in need and you take care of them you 're in effect doing it unto Jesus, that, that as you give of yourself and your time to minister and to bless other people who are in need you 're doing it in effect unto Jesus and Jesus is glorified and I think that that 's a safe interpretation but Probably more literal to the context is he's talking about the Jewish people, who were the brothers of Jesus. He's talking very familial here. He's speaking about those who were in relation to him, and the context really lends itself more so to the Jewish people. In other words, what he's saying now this gets a little gets a little difficult because listen, we're not judged on the basis of our works. What he seems to be saying here is that when people during the tribulation time people who get saved, the way that they treat the Jews during that time will be indicative of their relationship with Jesus. That seems to be what he's saying here, that there will be people during the tribulation time who get saved, who treat the Jewish people with love and respect and tenderness and care for them, and Jesus takes note of that. And it is an evidence, because of their care for the Jewish people, that they are actually belonging to him, that they are saved and born again because they demonstrate it. The evidence is the way they treat the Jewish people. Remember, in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about Satan as the dragon who always stands at the woman about to give birth to devour her child. Everything that is anti-Semitic is related and traced back to Satan. Everything that is opposed to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel is rooted in Satan himself. And so when we come to faith in Jesus, one of the things that turns if there has been anti-Semitism in your heart is you have more of a love for the Jewish people. It's just something that happens as a result of you coming to love Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah. And so when he speaks here in these terms, it seems to be an indication of their love for the Jewish people. Those are the brethren, those are the brothers of mine. And he says the opposite to, the, to those on his left. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice that hell was not created for mankind originally. It was created for the devil and the fallen angels who had rebelled against God. We just join them in hell when we rebel against the Lord. But his intent is that none should perish, none should go to hell. He says, verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me Nothing to eat, I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal
0: life. Is life. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person, and that includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough you can come to him no matter what your past looks like would you like someone to pray with you or do you have some more questions we'd love to talk to you please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net that's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net we'd love to meet you too you're invited to join us this weekend at cornerstone chapel in leesburg we're meeting in person as well as online And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series and Matthew, or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection.